0: There can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program, so please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing, or pop on some headphones, and that way no one can get offended but you.
1: Shocking. We are training our children from a very early age in a scarcity mentality. Frankly, we need to go root and branch into the way we bring up citizens in Australia because what we are teaching everyone from the very moment they're born is some of you are winners and some of you are losers. And so it will go on.
0: Rights for Festivals proudly presents the Scone Literary Festival with Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This session is Ethics in an Age of Doubt. How do we build an ethical society? With Father Rod Bauer, Kerry O'Brien, Jane Carrow, in conversation with Dr Matt Beard from the Ethics Centre.
2: This next session is uh, Ethics in an Age of Doubt. How do we build an ethical society? And our host is Dr Matt Beard. Matt is a moral philosopher with a background in applied and military ethics. He has taught philosophy, philosophy and ethics at university for several years and has been extensively published in academic journals, book chapters, and is a sought-after speaker as both national, in both national and international
3: conferences.
2: Matt won the Australian Association of Philosophy Prize for Media Engagement, recognising his prolific contribution to public philosophy. Ladies and gentlemen, Matt Beard and his distinguished panel.
4: Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and um, good morning, everyone. Um, We have a very short window of time to solve a very big problem, um, which has been contemplated for at least the last 3,000 years, Mm. um, how we build a good society. So I am going to move um, straight into it without too much preamble, but I do want to begin by introducing our panel, because you are going to be hearing far more from them than you are from me. To so begin on my left with um, Father Rod Bauer, who's rector of the Anglican, uh, the Gosford Anglican Church. Yeah. <clears throat> Jan Caro, feminist writer and social commentator, and Kerry, who you've already met. Please welcome our panel. <clears throat> I want to begin um, with you, Rod, but just work across, and we'll get Kerry last because he's probably just coming up for air. Um, the, the topic of the session is ethics in an age of doubt. How do we build an ethical society? And I want to begin at the end and work our way back. So we'll start with an ethical society, we'll talk about doubt, and then we'll come to talking about ethics itself. Um, I want to start by asking if you could just describe one, not the full picture, but just one, one characteristic of what you consider an ethical society to be. Just. Just, okay. A just society. What does that look like when you say just?
2: It looks it it looks like a society where there is the 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 proper life giving use of power uh, and the and and the appropriate use of wealth. You'll probably throw sex in there as
3: <laughs> well. <laughs>
4: Actually, okay. religions in there
3: somewhere. <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
4: That's right. <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. Jade. An ethical society, one characteristic?
1: Uh, It gives equal value to every single member. There is no superior or inferior. There are no winners or losers. Everybody is of equal value. The vulnerable, those for whom society is for all sorts of reasons more difficult to navigate than for others, are thought of first and everything is designed around them not the asked about why we do it.
4: Kerry?
3: A respectful society. Uh, respect between politicians uh, who should be reminding themselves constantly that they are actually there on behalf of others, not on behalf of themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, respect within news media. Um, and if you if you look at the way the media often treats individuals, particularly the vulnerable, uh, if you could imagine the journalist and the organization that was responsible for what I would regard as irresponsible stories and damaging stories, unfairly damaging stories, yeah, and imagine those individuals taking a respectful approach, a sort of civil approach, if you like, a, a, an understanding of what a civil society might be, uh, then a lot of other things I think fall into place around that. You might see politicians uh, treating interviews with responsible journalists seriously and in understanding that the journalists are really asking those questions on behalf of the public that they are supposed to represent and if they understood and honoured that respect uh, they would be regarded much better for it by the people that they are actually showing contempt for when they don't answer questions or ignore the questions and give the answer that is self-serving.
4: You use the term there, civil society, and I think that's an interesting one to consider. What is the relationship between a civil society and an ethical society? Are they synonymous, or what are the differences? Because there have been some people, especially recently, who have talked about these, these established norms of civility, that we must first be civil to one another, are actually preserving the status quo, and meaning that there are some voices or some ways of expressing yourself that are hived off and they don't get the same protections to free speech so the person who swears uh the person who is inarticulate um when they ask a question on q a because they come from a um a low-income background or from um, a lower education background that there's there's more priority placed on the way in which things are said than the actual content of what has been said and that's one of the criticisms that's been leveled against civility in the kind of a a post-trump era shall we say Mm. um so what's your view on the relationship? And then I want Jane and Rod to jump in on this as well, on the relationship between a civil society and an ethical society.
3: Well, I, I, to me, the ethics doesn't come first. The ethics, uh, there's something, there should be something instinctive about uh, Ines, about leading an ethical life. But, uh, but I think if, if you actually, and I'll come back to respect without labouring the point, if you have an essential civility towards other human beings around you, uh, whether it's your neighbour over the back fence, whether it is in the community of your street, whether it is in your work, whether it's within your family, um, then then I think if if there is that level of, of, I would hope, natural... You know, human nature hasn't changed. It's the one thing, it's the one constant in the whole of civilization. Human nature is what it is, in all its best and all its worst and all the bits in between. But I think that there is something innately in us that is good, and that's that's what you want to dominate mm. and and i think if you're a child growing up if you re- see respect between your parents not just their respect to you but if you see respect within your parents that's one of the starting points of civility and so much so much of uh, i'm i'm sure that so much of marriage breakdown so much of domestic violence those things The loss of respect has come before that, hasn't it?
1: Oh, yeah. Civility is interesting and it is difficult. Because I think that one of the things that's happened in the last couple of years is women have, in fact, worldwide accessed their anger for the first time, and that's as a result of the Me Too movement. Where, and prior to that, it was really women who were expected to be particularly civil. There was a much higher standard of behaviour expected of us. We weren't allowed to humanly lose our temper or you know, um, there was a, there's a lot of still an attitude that it's worse for women to swear or it's worse for women to, um, you know, lose their temper. They become shrill and strident and all those terrible uh, pejoratives. But actually an anger used constructively is what drives change. Um, and it is perfectly reasonable and it is a survival mechanism for someone who is feeling that their boundaries have been um, unfairly and brutally invaded, to get angry and to push back. And I think that's what we're seeing women do across the world now. And that is a wholly good thing, but it's not going to increase civility, at least in the short term. So I think being polite and civil is important, but I don't think it's a blanket rule. I think there are times when you no longer have to be polite and civil and that it is human and reasonable to actually explode. And I have seen when someone who almost never does, probably all of you have seen this, when someone who almost never does finally loses their cool and goes off, it has huge impact on them. They take it very, very seriously. And um, my definition of feminism has changed in the last decade or so. It's gone from, you know, equality between the sexes to actually the fight, and I use the word fight deliberately, by half the human race to be taken seriously by the other half. And women weren't allowed to access their anger because we were derided for it. We were mocked. Our anger was never legitimate because an invasion of our boundaries was perfectly reasonable and acceptable and men got to decide, you know, what our boundaries were allowed to be. And that leads to the sort of thing you're talking about. If you have no respect for your partner's boundaries and individual, individuality, really you see them as a kind of servant, Uh, I think women for a very long time were the servant gender, that's what our job was, to serve others, Um, then you uh, feel perfectly entitled when they behave uh, um, outside that little construct you've made for them uh, to hit them or uh, treat them with disrespect and even worse, if they try to leave you, do even more appalling things. So I think yes, civility in normal everyday life and for most of the time is really important. But anger has its purposes. Almost all comedy is anger redirected in a really constructive and useful way, and I, I love that, and I use it quite a lot. Um, so I'd hate to see us become that sort of nicey-nice society, yeah. which perhaps we had to some extent in the 50s, where everyone was awfully nice. Niceness is terribly important. Uh, that's, that's freezing. That freezes you to death. I guess
2: what we saw in the 50s, and mm. I guess we grew up in that kind of very formative space uh, r- around that civility of the, 19, the post-war 19. You
1: can't 50. say anything nice, don't say anything it, it's, at all. It's, it's,
2: it's, not a, it's not a proper use of civility in no. that sense. It is about proper boundaries, mm. which allow the, the proper expression of anger uh, and the proper expression of, of power. Um, and, and I think what shocked us all a little bit over the last couple of weeks, is the realization of, of how what a thin veneer civil society really has. When we start fighting in supermarket aisles over toilet paper, I think we're all a little bit shocked by how a thin how thin civility really is in our society. And I think that's a real wake-up call to actually start to do some proper work uh, around what civility really means and what what are the the, the, the productive boundaries in our society that enable the proper expression of all kinds of, of really intense emotions and asking really deep questions. How do we actually go about that? We, I think we, as, as, a, as abusive as it was in some ways, um, our, our traditions and norms in the, in the society in which many of us grew up in um, did create some boundaries. Uh, and, and some of those were helpful and some of those actually uh, enabled oppression and abuse and, and that kind of thing. So I think it's a great time for us to be revisiting this question uh, and really having a deep discussion about what civil society really is.
3: The big difference, the big difference, or one big difference, is the is the digital age and the age of social media that allows people um, even if they're not anonymous, it, it certainly allows people to abuse others anonymously. Trolls. Mm. It also allows them to abuse them, even if they put their name to it, without having to stare that person in the face as they yeah. do it. It is a very cowardly means of confronting. Just and to venting.
1: be devil's advocate for a second, and I, t- I agree with you to it, you know ninety percent. But one of the things I also noticed about social media, perhaps more so in the early days than now, is that. Actually, women have experienced that kind of uh, trolling face-to-face um, in the workplace for a very long time. That's what Me Too, that was yeah. what Me Too was about, women yeah. saying, this was done to me, this was done to me. And what I remember is that when it happened behind a closed door of an office, um, then you'd come out and say, I can't believe that this was just said or this was just... People went, oh, no, you're exact. No, no, that didn't happen. So you got this sort of not (coughs) able to show what was actually going on. Mm. What happened on social media with the trolls before Me Too is that for the first time, I think, a lot of people of goodwill saw what was actually happening. And there was a kind of, whoa, whoa because it's not like those people weren't like that before there was right. social media. They were, they bullied, they abused, they mocked their wives, their daughters, their colleagues, their workmates. You know, they were still there. We all got to see the reality of it. But, what, me, you, but what,
3: you, what you are seeing, Jane, is, is the crowd aspect. And that's <coughs> horrific. You know, where, where one person might Make might, a mistake. Might, no, might give the voice and uh, which others take as a permission to join in. And it's isn't, an ugly, ugly thing to isn't isn't Is this, this,
4: where we want to pivot to talking about doubt? Because in the setup yeah. to this discussion, um, the the role of doubt was almost suggested as ethics in an age of doubt, that the doubt is one of the problems for ethics. Um, you know, we live in a post-truth era where we don't know what's true anymore. People are beginning to be skeptical about, you know, scientific truths, the role of experts, trust in institutions is falling. But social media is an environment where There are a range of ways in which the the architecture of the web is built and the ways that the the architecture of these platforms are built that give a false sense of certainty. So, Jane, when you describe, for example, people who are able to witness the negative treatment, you have to have a particular set of social connections within the platform to even see that. Otherwise, you are not going to be connected to the people who are having those kinds of experiences. When when these kind of... um, when there are these kind of bandwagons of shame that jump on one particular person that generate when a couple of users with influence kind of call someone out as something being done wrong, there's a level of absolute certainty of the justice that we are meeting out against this person. Mm. It's vigilantism kind of playing out online. Um, But that's a place where actually introducing some doubt seems really, really valuable in terms of actually improving the ethical character of the platform. So, what what do you see as the role of doubt? Is it a positive force? Is it something that needs to be held back? We need more doubt. We need more doubt. Doubt in what?
1: Doubt in your own point of view. Doubt in your own perspective. Doubt in your own beliefs. Doubt in your own certainties. Um, the more certain and dogmatic you are about something, and I can take my own advice on occasions, I absolutely admit that, um, then the more you should go and have a good think about it occasionally. Um, but it's terribly hard to express doubt in social media when there's, particularly when there's a shame thing going on because if you do, what happens is the focus is pulled from the person. It's exactly the same as the schoolyard bullying, just writ large with numbers. Um, If you say anything like, well, I don't think you should pick on this person quite as much as you are, what happens is suddenly the the person who was the focus for the bullying (laughs) and you're the focus for the bullying and that's... That's a really hard thing to do, and I've, I've failed to do it on many occasions for fear. But I think to doubt yourself is the most fundamentally important thing.
3: As a father of six children, uh, I'm very conscious, and as a journalist who's who's seen and witnessed so many stories about uh, about this age of anxiety, particularly mm-hmm. in young people, and and where that has led so many. Um, I think you've got to be careful about being a great sponsor of the virtues of doubt if one of them is a doubt in your own capacity or a doubt in your own worth.
1: Yeah, don't mean and, that kind of uh, doubt. I know
3: you don't, but I think certainty. we've got to distinguish. And I think also that, uh, that there is an enormous uncertainty in this age about our own futures and mm. the future of work is a, is a massive debate that's not being had. I think that the, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a kind of evangelist against social media, I think there are some really powerful positives about all of it, but when you have a vacuum of leadership amongst our political class, uh, I think having too doubtful a society uh, is a dangerous thing, because It'll that vacuum of anxiety. leadership is taken up through the web, it's taken up by, I mean, when you see a Pauline Hansen emerge, and that brand of leadership, the thing that is uh, that is sustaining her is ignorance and fear, and fear often comes from doubt.
4: So I want to, I mean, hopefully we can circle back to doubt because there are some interesting questions about um, the role that doubt has played in, um, particularly in victims, and, and Rod, I'd like to get your input on um, the experience from victims of um, child sex abuse. Um, and the role that doubt has played in actually preserving power. And I'd love to come back to that point.
1: Also in the sowing of doubt in the science of climate change. Yes. So So there is, is, like there is good anger and bad anger, there's good doubt and bad doubt. But it
4: seems to me that leadership might be a way of unlocking this. And Kerry, you've just articulated something about leadership. What does leadership, what should leadership look like in this kind of ethical society that we're trying to sketch out? And what's missing from leadership today? Oh, God. It
1: seems to, let, um, no, not him. I'll give you I'll
3: give you, <laughs> I'll give you I'll give you I'll give you two examples of leadership <clears throat> from people who weren't politicians, and in fact it was stipulated that they couldn't be politicians. One was Cerninian Stephen, uh the governor uh, the High Court judge who became Governor General, and the other was another High Court judge in William Dean, who also became Governor General. Now they were leaders. And if you tried to uh, you, you could define Bill Dean's leadership to a degree from some of the speeches he gave and some of his actions. It was a little harder, uh, I've thought about this, to try and put the finger on what was the quality of, of Ninian and Stephen's leadership because he was a quiet guy who went about his business of opening fates and speaking at Boy Scout functions and handing out awards and so on. Um, but he was a class act and he was highly respected by the time he left and Probably more people knew him than many other governors-general, possible exception of John Kerr. Um, uh, and and uh, there's something intangible about his form of it. It's much more overt. It's easier to pick or uh, it's, its presence or absence in politicians.
4: So one of the things that's interesting about leadership is we talk about it often in terms of the visionary who has an idea of the end state that they are kind of bringing people toward the examples that you've given are people who are just in a particular role conducting themselves with an, a level of excellence and a level of character
2: but I think one of, I think the one of the elements that that typifies those people is a, is, is is a proper understanding of humility yeah and I think mm. that's that's actually got something to do with doubt yes you're, you're mm. a proper understanding of doubt and a proper understanding of humility I was listening to that wonderful podcast on the way up uh, the eleventh uh, episode, four, that talks about Sir um, uh, John Kerr. Um, I, this, I gave John Kerr the last rites when I was a student priest <laughs> in, uh, in back in 1991. I didn't work; at, it didn't work at the time. Actually, it lived on a little bit longer, but, um, but there was there was a man without any shred of humility. Uh, yes, no shred of humility at all. So, understanding of humility is about knowing yourself knowing yourself deeply and and well and i think that that's the, what's missing from our our leadership really uh at the moment we, we... is that proper understanding of humility and and the, the but the media has got something to do with that because it at the moment the way the not all journalists but you know some of the certainly tabloid media will will see that uh proper humility as as a weakness
1: and it isn't it no. absolutely is. It, it's interesting. I don't think it's just the media. I, I am now automatically terrified whenever the corporate culture gets hold of a particular um, quality and decides to run courses training people in it. So all those leadership courses have really dist- – because they, they, they take that intangible and try to make it into some sort of formula. And as soon as you start doing that, you actually, it's like you kill the very thing that is incredibly important. And so this, if you like, formulate leadership, which we're now sort of supposed to worship at, Mm. and which I think our political leaders have really, on both sides of the fence, fallen into. This idea you have to be relentlessly positive, that you always have to spin everything in a certain way, that you must... You know, you you use these three words constantly, you know, intelligence, imagination, compassion, as if they were kind of tissues that you could throw away. They have no actual meaning as long as people think you're living up to them. This has infected our politics horribly and it's come out of this kind of commodification of values.
4: So I want to move to that. When we talk about an ethical society and we use the term in in the brief of you know, whether there's something of an ethical infrastructure that we might need, which is a term that um, my colleague Simon Longstaff at the Ethics Centre has started to, to talk about, we think about an infrastructure as a set of tangible kinds of things. But I wonder if when we're talking about an ethical infrastructure, we're looking at a series of intangibles that that are the default settings for our society that perhaps need calibration. And one of those is potentially the kind of ways that we determine value. You mentioned commodification and the fact that we need to put some kind of a, a price, a market price on <clears> kinds of things or they need to be instrumentally useful to us in order to have value. So to me, it seems like if you look to the fundamental way that we determine the value of something at the moment, we look to the market and we look to something like GDPR as a way of doing that. And Very recently we had, um, we had discussions um, in the parliament around moving towards thinking about national well-being as being a way of starting to understand things. And the Treasurer um, promptly talked about um, the the proponents of this as just returning from their ashrams, barefooted, and kind of disparaged it as as a really hippie movement, Um, the sense that we can only value things in terms of their economic usefulness. I'm just going to open this to the panel for comment. Maybe it's beginning with you, Rod, as someone who deals explicitly in the (laughs) transcendent.
2: Well, <laughs> some would argue. Against that. <laughs> um, we um, we can modify not uh, not only by putting a, a, a monetary value on things, we, we, and I think there's a there's an even more evil expression of that is by putting a political value on. Uh, and we saw this in the refugee issue. There was a there, there these people are being commodified for political value. They so were being dehumanised. Uh, yes. yes, yeah, and then, Even and therefore the being names we gave them to, votes. And, and to do that, you have to, to do that successfully. You have
3: to dehumanise. And so the the,
2: the minute aren't we they start, one and the
4: same? Can you humanise someone and commodify them at the same no, time? No, you can't.
2: That's the whole point. You, you can't because uh, if you're if you're commodifying a,
4: a person for their monetary
2: value or their political value, uh, then they have to be dehumanised. And the minute you do that, you you. You cease to be able to have empathy, uh, and this is, I guess, one of the real causes to any sort of just society is to be able to see the other uh, as a human being of equal value. As Jane said, of equal value to yourself. The minute uh, you you step away from seeing that person uh, of equal dignity and value, is the moment that then you can commodify them, uh, and our whole. You know, we're in in a situation where um, our whole uh, political infrastructure is built around that, and we're going to see that if if the current situation with uh, coronavirus oh, yeah. stuff, we are we are going to begin to see uh, the the dehumanisation of older people.
1: we are seeing it already.
2: Yeah, uh, and that's what we've seen in Italy. Basically, if you're over sixty, you go home and die, uh, and, and so it's it's saying that. Uh, if I'm young and healthy, uh, then I am of more value, a more intrinsic value in society than if you are older and unwell. And that is an incredibly dangerous place for any society to be, uh, the minute the one one type of person is valued over another type of person. And at the end of the day, uh, that is all for economic reasons. It's just because it's, it's
3: going to be expensive. Uh, to well, it's they also do a, a cost-benefit desi- analysis. They do a cost-benefit analysis, al- also for the desire to escape the embarrassment of a discovery that the system that you say uh, is pretty good is, is going to fail.
1: I, I really agree with everything you just said, and it takes me back. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be silly, Rod. I usually do. Um, it's just we part company on the transcendental. <laughs> but. Um, I'll probably agree with you, actually. A minor thing. I sleep this back to some extent to this absolute obsession we have with accountability because if you think about accountability, it is based on two things. It's a measure. It's a monetary measure, accounting. You account. And it is also a blame-oriented measure. So... If you are going to make people accountable for everything, even things you cannot be held accountable for, you know, how your child is going to turn out, no parent can guarantee that their kid's going to turn out to be a halfway decent human being. We're all in their pitching. But that doesn't necessarily mean we'll be successful. But I'm pretty sure there'll soon be a My Mother Graph, you know, a website uh, where you'll get marked green, red, you know, orange as to your... Uh, capacity for parenting, and your childcare rebate and things will be measured according to your value as a parent. Don't laugh. Um, This is the attitude that society now has to just about everything. And it's as if we feel that if you can't count it, it doesn't exist and it has no value. So we've actually gone into lunatic land in terms of placing uh, a monetary, a cost-benefit analysis on absolutely everything.
3: Ironically, we've never had less accountable government, and uh, and that's that's been uh, an accrual. You know, that's been a gradual process.
4: Well, less responsible too. I think yeah. I think the two are related. So, I I think that what you see when you prioritise the formal systems of accountability, um, but then you take away the sense of responsibility that needs to come with that you see people working around the systems, trying to take advantage of them, or simply demonstrating a level of kind of uh, laziness or incompetence towards those systems because they're not the kind of person who captures the value.
3: At the heart of all of this, uh, there is a process of manipulation going on that I think is unprecedented. And uh, this is the age of marketing. I think marketing is one of the great evils. It is one of the, the... I've felt this for a long time, long before Scotty... (laughs) <laughs> and, and you see it all the time. And politicians think that uh, if something goes wrong, they market their way out mm. and they've marketed their way into it. Uh, and and it, we are all, you know, we're all in the game we are, and we are all victims of the game. Uh, consume, the age of consumerism and the marketing that, that allows that and that leads that and the manipulation through the marketing and the manipulation of the media and manipulation at times by the media. Uh, these things are at the heart of what I think is the breaking down of democracy. And I would agree. And the, and, and the confusion that goes, you just market your way out of it. And one one of the other tricks of politics, modern politics, is that if you if you have an issue that you know is going to run against you, and it might be something really quite nasty that you've been exposed on, um, when all else fails, you just wait it out. And you wait it out because you know that before long, whether it's a matter of hours or days, in the 24-hour churn of the news cycle, journalists are going to move on at a certain point and the public substantially are going to want you to move on too.
1: They forget about it as well, very quickly. And,
3: uh, and so it's fascinating. I, somebody should be doing a study on this. And with with the illustrations of of the of, of how effective it is and how long what is the longest time that a politician has waited it out and it's gone away and they've survived like bushfires for instance
4: so if it's if it's an issue of marketing, how concerned are you then by the the, the new developments that are happening in marketing We're now I'm saying marketing is is not just a matter of um, developing a really good sales pitch marketing is now driven by enormous amounts not just of demographic information about people but personalized data that people upload to a variety of websites of which government sits on more data than anybody else Um, combined with health biometrics so you can target people based on their health information we're seeing the effectiveness of um, groups like Cambridge Analytica and we're now at the at this tipping point where in the past you used to Be able to find someone who had a view, and know that was your customer. Now we're at the point where we're not just finding out what people understand and being able to deliver it to them. We're being able to mould what people actually desire and actually plant that seed based on information about them. So, do you have any hope in a marketing-based political system that that, this is not a problem that's going to get worse?
3: Well, it is a problem that's going to get worse if it's not arrested. And I don't know how you arrest it. I was talking about. We shouldn't allow ourselves to feel powerless. But the, this is at the core of our sense of powerlessness, I think. These things are, we, we kind of, to me, I hope I'm wrong. You just get the sense that the genie's out of the bottle on this one. That-
1: mm. As someone who worked in advertising for 35 years, um, what we forget is what marketing actually fundamentally is. And what it is is communication with a monetary value. That's all it is. It is just a form of communication but it has a monetary value, so it's done for a financial purpose. Most of what we see is bad marketing, like really poor. The marketing is abysmal by and large. It's not intelligent. It's not well done. And one of the things that I do have hope about is the way marketers approach the world remains so stereotypical. In other words, everyone who's just been on a holiday somewhere, what do you get coming up on your Facebook feed constantly but ads for the place you've just come back from. <laughs> like, that's just stupid. And what do I get constantly because I'm 62? Ads for how to get rid of unwanted belly fat. Now, it's true. <laughs> I do have some unwanted belly fat, but I'm not but an how idiot. how did they
3: know, Jane? <laughs> because,
1: st- because they're stereotyping 62-year-old women. You show me a, we're either scrawny or fat. There's no in-between. Um, <laughs> So you know it, it what I'm saying is the only thing, hope I have in the is is in the very um limited brain power of so many people who practice this stuff now, shit, this shit um Cambridge Analytica is a different case in point that was really dangerous, and it has now been shut down, which is a good thing.
4: Well, it has it, been shut down, yeah. but the firms that operate on those principles I know they carry um, on it's the
1: dynamic
2: between. Fact and truth, yes, and they're two different things. Because there, there, there's the fact in that that I'm a 57-year-old man with belly fat. <laughs> uh, and that's not who you are. And and then what people will do with that fact can either be be truth or untruth. And and we've got to kind of come to a, I think, societally a, a very deep understanding. Of the the dynamic between truth and fact, that's a fact. But what are people doing with that fact to manipulate um, hmm. my behaviour? Uh, that's and, and that's that's about truth. And and politicians do this all the time. They'll they'll come up with a a fact, uh, and then we call it in politics spin. But they'll spin it into something that is not true. Yeah. Uh, and and they'll do it or almost obsessively. True. There's an emerging pathology. I think among uh, some politicians at the moment uh, that they there's a um, when you study the the adult child of adult children of alcoholics, for instance, uh, one of the, the the typifying things of that is you never 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 tell the truth when a lie will do, mm-hmm. um, and it, it seems like our politicians are in that in that space now. They they just even if they could tell the truth, they choose not to. Uh, so they'll take a fact and they'll they'll spin it in a way that actually is un, into an untruth. We've really got to train ourselves. If we want to be an ethical society, getting back to that, uh, we've really got to train ourselves to be able to understand the difference between fact and truth.
4: How do we train ourselves in community, though? Because one of the things that jumps out to me um, is when we talk about the marketing that's used by politicians politicians should not be treating us as though we were a market our they consumers. should be treating us as though we were as citizenry C- citizens. and our response needs to be not to behave as consumers but to behave as citizens and that means that we can't respond purely as individuals when we go to the supermarket and act as consumers we do what's best for us we individualize and we compete with one another and that's exactly what we've seen people do at supermarkets in the face of individual threat um but as a community and as a citizenry, Rod, I want to talk, hear your thoughts on this as someone who has been at the forefront of a very large social campaign around children in detention. How do we get people to act collectively? What, is, what, is the, what are the barriers to collective action and what are the political opportunities if we can just unlock that?
2: I think the, the barrier to people acting collectively on that particular issue was the, the, again, the manipulation uh, of facts into untruths and the, the deactivation of um, empathy. Uh, because it, it initially, right back in the beginning of that story, we weren't allowed to see uh, photos, we weren't allowed to hear voices, and it was so easy to dehumanise those people. Uh, to take and rob their identity, they we took. we gave them numbers instead of names.
3: They were not just um, dehumanised; they were a threat. Yes, they were sold as a threat. Well, that's the next step. The fearful and, and
2: it, other, and you know, the, the first one to mention the Nazis lose the argument, but that's precisely what happened. It's what happened when you start calling, um, you dehumanise, and you then you give a name uh, like vermin. You give them a name, so you dehumanise, and then you give a label that is a threatening label, like illegals. What do you do with illegal people? You lock them up. Perfectly logical. That's, that's what you do. Um, and so, and, and that robs us then as a, as a citizen uh, of the, the ability to act collectively because to once you've robbed those people of their identity, labelled them as a threat, the minute you then stand up for them, you are also labelled as a threat. Yes. Uh, and that's what stops the people getting together. Then you get that, that nervous sort of mob thing coming, oh, i better just see which way the wind's
1: blowing. But the other thing that's working here is, a, is, a, is marketing again. Because what we were trained to do, when we decided that neoliberalism and market forces were the, 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 the driving force of hum, human society, uh, which happened around about the late 70s, early 80s, is we started to train everybody everybody to be a consumer rather than a citizen. And what we started to do is we started to bring in this idea of scarcity. One of the most powerful marketing tools there is is the idea that there's only a little of this and you're going to have to rush to get it because that's why every sales ad says hurry while stocks last. (coughs) That is an out-and-out lie. They would not be having a sale if they didn't have too much stock that they needed to get rid of, okay? The two things are opposites. So hurry while stocks last is the classic trying to drive you into thinking, shit, I must go and get this stuff because toilet paper, scarcity mentality, exactly the same thing. We did it with our... Wealth as a nation. Instead of we're the wealthiest nation in the world and instead of making us more generous, it's made us more fearful because what was driven by politicians was this idea, oh, no, there's not enough to go around. We can't afford to raise new staff. We can't afford to have a decent public school system. Oh, no, there's not enough to go around. They know this works for them because people vote for those who are going to give them them the individual access to that limited pie. And that was exactly this. This was, oh, we haven't got enough in Australia. We can't afford to take these 400 people. I mean, are you kidding me? Because, oh, there's not enough for you. That also activates, in particular, those who feel very vulnerable and for whom scarcity is a reality. Because most of the people who are, you know, very exercised about refugees are often themselves quite marginalized. They're often, you know, they're often um, very terrified that if they, let anyone else get some, there won't be enough for them. This is a political device that has been driven deliberately for 30 years. It is
4: so destructive. But the reason it's effective, let's go to that, because the reason it's effective it seems to me is, and therefore the solution is not to say, it's not true, there will still be enough for everyone. The solution is to say maybe in order for some people to get the bare minimum, you will need to make do with less. Maybe there is something well, we tried here that, franking about... About the, <laughs> yeah. So how do we get to? And that's a great example about how do we get to a state where we're not just massaging around the end, edges of these kind of deeply ingrained views, when in fact they are what need to change. Like where where do we go with that? I'm getting up one last comment, and then I'm going to give an opportunity for a couple of questions from the well,
3: you You really do have to understand the beast, don't you? And it's got many forms. I mean, look at look at ethics. And the big corporations, uh, and and this has been, I, I mean, you know, I, the history history hasn't really changed in terms of the fundamentals, and uh, and one of the things that kept uh, that kept corporations honest, I think, was trade unions. Another thing that kind of screened the dark side of uh, of capitalism was the fear of communism. You had two natural enemies in communism and capitalism. Uh, for a 100 years or more, and when communism failed, when, the, when, when, when um, communism collapsed, it seemed to me that the great challenge for capitalism was, do we take complete advantage of this and run rampant in the most obvious way, uh, or do we actually now understand that without that screen, we are going to have to behave reasonably, mm. or we are going to, over time, create another enemy for ourselves? And I don't think they, I don't think they woke to that at all. And it's evidence now if you just, I mean, I won't, we all know the stories of wage theft. We know the stories of the banks from the Royal Commission. We know about the fundamental criminal dishonesty of, uh, of Volkswagen.
4: Massively. Not to mention the other screens within capitalism, unpaid labor, colonialism, mm. all, of, those, all, all of, those, of these things that on which the system things. relies. And
3: yet at the same time, you know, you think about this individually, if you look at many boards, the individuals on those boards, when they go into their own local community, are upstanding citizens mm. in particular ways. They might be great parents, great uh, churchgoers and whatever, and yet something happens when they get onto that board and and self-interest comes into it, or fear of their own failure if they're not driving the share price up enough through well, unethical right. behaviour.
1: Part so, of it is the, the, the way we measure their success is completely anti- Antithetical to a community benefit, and entirely about individual success. So,
3: so some of it comes back to the kind of homes that we're growing up in today, and it's not about blaming parents, but the, but that is a part of the mosaic. Uh, a part of it is raising questions about what what we're teaching in universities, what we're teaching in schools, and what we're teaching in universities. And finally, you've got to look at, at an area like politics, uh, and notice the the difference in the motivation of people going into it. I mean, Jack Keating was fond of quoting Jack Lang and, and uh, always backed the horse called self-interest in a race. Uh, so self-interest has existed as long as we have. Um, but I think that for a long time, politicians would arrive, and the many politicians would arrive in their parliament with some sense of vocation, that there was something beyond their self-interest that they were there for. And many of them, most of them arrived after they'd lived out in the real world for a certain amount of time and experienced the knocks and the scars and understood from what they saw in their workplaces and their world uh, of the failures of society that they wanted and the, and the injustices of society that, that many of them had a genuine desire to try and help fix. What you get now uh, often is students going to universities often from a background of privilege, relative privilege, um, deciding that they're going to become a politician when they leave university in the same way that they once decided to be teachers or electricians or accountants or whatever. In other words, to the degree that it was a vocation, it has become like every other game. Uh, it is, it is uh, a career. Just
1: add to that. I think you're absolutely... because
4: sp- I do want to get some questions. On, on
1: really questions quickly, in. we started very early. We have the most expensive childcare system in the world. This means that, therefore, only certain privileged children get access from a very early age to early education. In fact, the very ones who need it least get it most. Then we go into a school system which is absolutely divided and segregated according to class and parents' ability to pay. This is shocking. We are training our children from a very early age in a scarcity mentality. Frankly, we need to go root and branch into the way we bring up citizens in Australia because what we are teaching everyone from the very moment they're born is some of you are winners and some of you are losers. And so it will go on and we keep voting for governments who keep justifying it.
4: Rod, one last Uh, word. (coughs)
1: Our
2: our, our whole economic system is based on that consciousness of scarcity. Yes. And... Um, that, that, that wonderful story of the feeding the 5,000, for me it's not about miracle, it's about a shift in consciousness from a consciousness of scarcity to one of abundance. Uh, and that's, that's the shift we have to make. Uh, but we're going to have to upturn our whole economic system to do that. But we're not going to do that. The planet's going to do that. And we, well, will, have no, we will have no choice about that. How we survive in that shift, will depend on whether we can make that conscious shift between one of uh, one of scarcity to one of abundance. But that's that will determine our survival.
4: We have a, a roving microphone, I think, and some questions from the floor. How can we have a respectful society
1: or an ethical society without respect not only for each other but also for the creatures that walk this earth with us in the environment in which we live? Mm. Oh.
4: Yeah, yeah, so thoughts about how wide... How, how we go about re-extending and where we draw the line on re-extending. I was listening to a discussion yesterday that was talking about why we now need to begin to consider trees to be part of our moral community, not just saying that trees are worth $50,000 kind of, and if one gets knocked down, that's terrible um, and they're useful for us, but that we consider trees as having some kind of intrinsic agency and in lives of their own that deserve to be respected. Is that, is that something that kind of, Huge You're receptive to
1: yeah. There's a huge change in the way we've looked at nature that's got to happen. Man, and I use man deliberately, believed that nature was there to be dominated and to be. We call progress when we make nature submit to the way we want it to be, rather than the way that it naturally is. I was on the drum and I had this really quite bizarre experience where I, I confessed, I admitted. To being a member of Extinction Rebellion, and this right winger who was on did that call of the they right wing. Loud. Oh, yeah! Apparently, <laughs> they are only when I'm on. I think um, um, they did the call of the right wing, which was the <laughs> noise. Um, that is how you can pick them. And um, they said, um, "They said, oh, we're not going to go extinct." I said, "Did you know that we're not the only species?" I couldn't believe that that the mindset was that Extinction Rebellion was this group that believed that they were fighting against their own extinction. Now, I'm sure there's part of that in it. But we know the extinction of species all over the earth is happening at a greater rate than it ever has before. I don't know that we can survive if they can't. We're all part of the same, you know. But this was the mindset, that if it's not about human beings, then it doesn't
4: matter. Rod, isn't this what it's about? Is really reframing from a sense of me as an atomized individual that's disconnected to saying that we are we fail and flourish together. We are all interdependent, not just on each other as a community of humans, but as an ecosystem really that we find thing. ourselves but part honest,
2: of. We are a a communion. We we are actually interrelated one with the other and uh, we we forget that at our peril, uh, and, and our, the, the, more, the more we can heighten our consciousness of the fact that I'm connected to you, I'm connected to that tree out there, I'm connected to the water that's flowing down the, the river with algae in it at the moment, and all of that, um, and we, we can't exist without each other, uh, and that goes right down to the, the, the smallest microorganism. We cannot exist without each other and uh, and if we want an e- a totally ethical society that includes everything not just other human beings
4: We've got time for one last question uh, once upon a time we probably looked to the church for our moral leadership in society and you've
2: probably during the panel put a point of the finger at some certain places where that moral leadership could uh, or is lacking from today and I wonder what everyone's opinions of is schools as an institution which should perhaps provide, moral leadership, and I'm not necessarily thinking that as a prescription of what is good or what is bad, but teaching kids a way of thinking which enables them to be better equipped for a society with such moral ambiguity.
4: Dan, I know you've got views on the role of moral education in schools, but before that, just, Rod, maybe a quick word on the role of religious institutions today by comparison to where it once was. Uh,
2: We completely failed. We we have utterly failed. Um, in every aspect of this. Uh, we have absolutely no credibility whatsoever. Um, and we've got a very long way to go uh, to rebuild that. Um, the, I mean, in our own diocese here in Newcastle, the Diocese of Newcastle, we've been incredibly fortunate to have the bishop we had during the, um, during the Royal Commission, uh, a survivor of abuse himself. and He taught us to look at the whole thing from the, uh, through the, the lens of a survivor and not through the lens of the institution. Uh, And he he really did um, lead us in in, an incredible way. Joanne McCarthy, who was a wonderful journalist who really precipitated uh, the Royal Commission, Uh, Jo Jo and I were speaking at Newcastle University about kids in in detention. And she basically said that had the Diocese of Newcastle not behaved in the way it did, then Rod would have absolutely no credibility speaking about children in detention. She's absolutely right. Um, but we've got a very long way to go yet before, you know, we can say that we offer any kind of moral leadership. Uh, very long way indeed.
4: And so is that slack that should be picked up by schools, Jane?
1: Uh, no. Um, let me just give you... A, basically, it's not about the curriculum. It's about what kind of school it is. And I'm saying this here. And I don't give a shit, I'm saying this here. One about you. If, if... <laughs> One of the fundamental bases of a functioning democracy and a civil and ethical society is an education system that says every child is of equal value. We will not be picking winners and losers and having a segregated school system, one that is so funded that I'm expecting them to be painting those schools in gold leaf soon because I can't imagine what they're going to do with that money, another $1.2 billion that they can invest. Has just gone to them for no fucking reason at all. Um, so, to them, to here, not all the 1.2 billion, but too much of it. Um, that is a dollar of it is too much of it. Um, what we have is a is a segregated education system. Mm-hmm. So, whatever the teachers teach inside their schools, whatever some lovely, warm hearted person teaches in a brilliantly resourced, like luxurious private school, where they're getting God knows how much public funding and thirty thousand dollars a year plus from parents says, is bullshit and they may as well not say it. And whatever they say in the underfunded schools which are crumbling and they don't have windows that close properly and they can't, haven't got enough textbooks about, you know, you should live ethically is also bullshit because they see every day that the people who could afford to do it more easily than them simply refuse to and do everything they can to shut them out of opportunity. Um, until we change that. Until we change the access that our children and young people have to e- equal opportunity to develop their skills and potential and their their intrinsic value to our society is appreciated and taken seriously. It doesn't matter what you put in the fucking curriculum.
3: I'm just, I'm just taking the names of the non-clappers.
4: <laughs> <laughs> on that note, would you please thank our panel? There's a powerful note to end on. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: We hope you enjoyed that episode from the Scone Literary Festival 2020. There's lots more coming from Scone on the Rights for Festival podcast, so make sure that you go and subscribe wherever you get your pods or head on over to the Rights for Women website, wwwrightsforwomencom forward slash Rights for Festivals. If you'd like to know more about Scone Literary Festival, go to www.sconeliteraryfestival.com.au. You can also follow them on Twitter and on Facebook. Don't forget to like, share, pass this around and maybe give us a rating or review wherever you're getting your podcasts so that other people can find us too. Thank you for supporting Australian Writing Festivals. Until next episode, keep reading, thinking and questioning. This podcast was brought to you by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.